This is the Music Publishing Podcast with your host, Dennis Tobensky. Join Dennis in his weekly nuts and bolts conversations with composers, performers, and other arts professionals as they navigate their careers as concert musicians in the 21st century. And now your host, Dennis Tobensky. Hello, and welcome to the Music Publishing Podcast. I'm here today with composer Kevin Clark. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So this is going to be good. Um, so Kevin, t- uh, tell us a little bit about um, who you are and what you do. All right, so that's oddly a gigantic question. Like, <laughs> like 74 different things. Um, so I'm a composer. I built New Music USA's project grants program and platform and that whole like shebang. Um, I give talks about arts economics and crowdfunding and arts entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. I work in software. I build grant making platforms and programs and consult as a product manager. Uh, I'm doing some work with cash music. I've been doing some work with life music project here in Seattle. I'm in Seattle now, by the way. Um, (laughs) I write stuff. I've got a podcast of my own called Actually Happening, where you know we swear a lot and Good. make weird jokes about the Pope. Um, Perfect. I like that. Yeah. The, the one time we did breaking news coverage on that show was when the Pope resigned. Like that's the level of, <laughs> of that show. Nice. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting stuff. I always forget things that I do. Oh, me too. <laughs> uh, so, tell 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 me a little bit about. Um, you know, some of these, uh, the groups that you work with, like uh, Cash Music and Live Music Project. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Cash Music. First thing, go to family.cashmusic.org. Do it right now, everybody mm-hmm. listening to this, uh, and sign up for the Cash Family. It's, you know, you give them pretty much a Netflix subscription worth of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in exchange, you get to support their being open source tools for artists. Nice. Uh, if you want to host your own music and sell it without forking over a chunk of change to a for-profit company, Cash Music is your jam. Nice. Um, their tech powered the most recent one, the Jewels release, uh, and the De La Soul record that was a Kickstarter project a while ago and came out late last year. Nice. They like built the store for Bikini Kill. Like they're they're a brilliant organization that's really in tune to you know, genres that are not usually new music, Mm -hmm. but the new music people, like I've been banging this drum for years, the new music people really need to get on this and use these tools because they're great and they're free. Awesome. Um, And like it plugs into your Stripe account and to your PayPal account and your MailChimp account. There's no like third-party for-profit bullshit taking all of your data and taking a chunk of your change. Cool. Um, and like artists need to be in control of their careers. Like this is a nonprofit organization building a sweet software platform and they're giving it to you for free. Um, if we want artists to be independent and self-sustaining in the next century, we need tools like this. We need uh, organizations like this that are building tools outside of a for-profit ecosystem. Like Mm -hmm. nobody can acquire cash music. Yeah. Like Bandcamp could get bought tomorrow and then everything would just go away. (laughs) Cash is a nonprofit. There is no ownership of it. Um, it's where we need our software to be coming from. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is part of like, if you're coming to new music gathering in May, you'll, there's a panel that uh, I'm running with my old boss Ed harsh from new music USA, Shia Lyon from live music project and Jesse Von doom from cash music. Cool. Uh, 
talking about building software platforms in the nonprofit space to support the arts. Nice. Uh, something I think we need to see a huge amount more of. Yeah. Um, but right now, go sign up for the Cash Family. You'll also get like you know exclusive tracks and access to sweet merch and all that sort of stuff. Like it's it's very much built to appeal to music practitioners and fans and developers. Like you'll get a vote on features in the roadmap. Cool. Go do it. It's WordPress for music. Go, go cool. do it now. Cool. Give yeah. them $9 a month. I've, Actually I've, give them more than that. But if you have $9, it's a Netflix subscription. Give them the money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've, I've got, I've got this up and I'm this is as soon as we're done here, I'm going to be like diving in and learning. Um, do it. and I will be at the new music gathering, uh, Excellent. in May. I'm, I'm, um, I can finally, um, announce this though this will air like weeks after the fact uh yeah. garrett hope and i will be doing a panel on um resource sharing and forms of oh, collaboration sweet. so that you know we can try to talk about ways to get shit done without breaking the bank <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so good i'll see you there sweet I, i'm looking forward to your panel uh and then yeah. uh live music project what what is the mm. Live Music Project is an awesome organization. Uh, what's the best way to start talking about them? So Live Music Project is a comprehensive classical music calendar listing for right now the Seattle area, but soon beyond. Um, I actually met Shia, the founder and ED, at the first New Music Gathering. Hmm. Uh, she came down like on a whim. <laughs> she didn't really know the New Music community or what the heck and just turned up. We wound up having lunch together and, you know, talking about stuff. And she was like, oh, so I do this work in software where I help, you know, people know what the hell they're supposed to be building at different times. Like, oh, you're a product manager. Me too. And she was like, what? Because <laughs> uh, there really aren't that many product managers in the nonprofit art space. Like, it's not yeah. a big world. Mm -hmm. I meet people at conferences and they're like, what do you do? It's like, I'm a product manager consulting on building grant making platforms in the arts. And they're like, that is a small niche. <laughs> Um, so the, there have been a lot of efforts over the years in various cities and various whatever is to build, build a centralized calendar. And like, mm -hmm. I mean, I've worked at new music USA since the day the financial crisis started. Yeah. I've had a lot of people walk up to me and say, you know, it would be great if you made a calendar. Um, and you know, sort of, mm -hmm. but, um, when people say that, what they really want is what would be what they really mean, because what they really desire is for what they is what would be great is if you would solve my marketing problems. Yeah, <laughs> um, which is actually really hard. And like, there are some things that organizations like New Music USA do great mm -hmm. that are like centralized things that can be an advocacy uh, function for the whole field. Mm -hmm. Um, which is like what the website is for. You publish your content instead of mailing it into a black box. Like it's, it actually helps advance the needs of all of new music, which yeah. is why I built the damn thing that way. Um, and there are other things that are harder to centralize, like all of your marketing and outreach. <laughs> uh, and so like if New Music USA were to say, you know what I'm going to try to do, I'm going to build a comprehensive calendar. It's going to be great. Like they'd be going up against timeout. They'd have to pick a city to start it with New Music USA as a mm -hmm. national organization. Yeah it would take three years to build up the user base and the credibility and the data. And it would take like three full-time staff members. And mm -hmm. I think everybody takes a look at new music USA and says, you know what, now that I think about it carefully, don't do that. Send that money out the door into the hands of artists. And we're like, great. We agree. Mm -hmm. um, the, 
the thing that Live Music Project did that's really wonderful is because Shia has a background in technology and being a product manager and building stuff around users. Mm -hmm. She's actually built this calendar from the ground up around the community itself in service of the actual needs of the actual people who are using the damn thing. Nice. Sorry, I swear constantly, especially when I'm doing a podcast taping. That's oh, just yes, sort of Ple- that, that, that's, that's yeah. the, the whole ethos yeah. of this. Swear, yeah. you know, I will say motherfucker, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, at the drop of a hat. We have, we have a th- saying on actually happening that we are uh, vulgar but inoffensive. <laughs> Our headline at the top of the podcast website used to be too hot for NPR. And then we got a review in the Onion AV Club that was like, this show is, they brand themselves as too hot for NPR, but they really don't say anything offensive or edgy. They just swear a lot. And we said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The the review actually called us pedantic, inoffensive, and often self-satisfied, which was, you know, accurate. (laughs) (laughs) And like, you know, we'll say fuck a lot, but mm-hmm. we will not actually do any, any oppressive humor of any kind. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, I mean, we have a fairly straight, firm stand on that. And now the headline on top of the website is The Onion Called Us Pedantic! Exclamation <laughs> point. Um, yeah. So, but, so the, the Live Music Project is built actually around the users and the needs of the actual people. So the the content is contributed by, by users. It's not built around, I mean, and this is the main problem that centralized calendar marketing efforts in the arts have. They're built around what the organizations are used to believing that they need. Mm -hmm. And if you talk to a bunch of symphony orchestras, they're going to tell you about the pain points that they have around their staff time. They're going to tell you about, it takes so long for us to update the calendar. It takes so long for us to send this stuff out. It takes so long for us to get this information out. And then they're going to give you this, there's going to be this big black box big wall in between the staff of the orchestra doing a thing and the audience actually getting the information. Mm -hmm. Shia, because she's an experienced and skilled product manager with a head for users, Mm -hmm. built it from the user side, built it from the audience fan side, instead of building it from the making it easier on the staff side, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, if you're talking to an arts nonprofit person is sort of like a mind blowing revelation. If you're talking to Shia, it's, well, of course, what, what, why would I not? What? (laughs) Of course I'm doing it that way. (laughs) Um, and as a result, there are thousands of users every month. There are people who find all of the concerts they go to mm-hmm. on Live Music Project, and they do a great job. Nice. So when I got here and Live Music Project went nonprofit, I joined the board. I'm now the chair of the board, and we do all this great work. And like, there are all sorts of other reasons Live Music Project is a fantastic organization who also deserve your money. Um, <laughs> they uh, There's a lot of innovative stuff going on. So... Apart from that, like we also have a brilliant engineer on the board, Sheila O, oh, who runs a certificate program at Seattle University. And we, you know, we build our own software at Live Music Project. We have a platform that serves our needs that we're building out that does all this cool stuff. And Sheila started off being board secretary, but we quickly realized that we can use, and that well, she she quickly figured out that <laughs> she could use her engineering skills. Mm to provide engineering management for our developer staff, which is, you know, one lead volunteer and a couple other people who help out from time to time. Mm. And that having a separate engineering management organization from the product organization that's headed up by Shia is really amazingly helpful. And having like nonprofits are used to saying we have a board lawyer, we have a board finance person. They're not used to saying software is key to how we serve our mission. And we have a board engineer. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and you, you talk to a lot of arts nonprofits, and they're like, what we really have to do is figure out how to take money off of the tech workers. And you're like, I mean, yes, I agree with you. They have the money. We should probably get some. Uh, but that doesn't involve, I mean, you, you, you can tell why that's bad fundraising. That's, I need your money. That's mm-hmm. not, I value you as a person. Yeah. Uh, and letting Sheila actually do engineering management says, okay, great. This is your role as an engineer in the organization. This is how your skills provide governance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, a model that a lot of other nonprofits can follow. I wrote about it on the blog. I think it's totally fantastic. Um, it's it's going to be great. Yeah, nice. I'm looking at the, the site right now. It, it looks it looks cool, and I'm mm-hmm. excited for it to move beyond Seattle. Mm. What I'd really love to see um, is someone make in the in the world of visual arts. Mm-hmm. Um, there are databases of galleries yeah so that artists themselves can find you know they can query galleries much more easily you know all around the country rather than Mm -hmm. you know okay so i have to actually you know well now with the internet it's a little bit easier um in terms of like doing the research but like not knowing where galleries are or the sorts of art that they do with these databases you can see okay you know these are these are places that i can query to just you know, have my art on display i would love to see some, you know some databases of like performance venues around the country for mm-hmm. for those of us who like to tour a little bit yeah and you know like without maybe knowing people in that city or with you know like knowing that yeah this little venue over here is great for for new music yeah um so let's let's do a little product development exercise yeah who would build that? I don't know. Great. Why would it be good for someone to have that? Like, how would they benefit from having done that work? Uh, it, the, the person I mean, I building the answer, it? I, yeah, I think the answer is that it's really, really hard to find an organization. That yeah, does that. yeah, exactly. Anything, right? Like, um, Cash Music actually has a piece of that for rock venues. Well, rock mm-hmm. venues. I say rock for pop music because I'm 50 years out of date because I work in <laughs> classical music uh, for like clubs and bars and, mm-hmm. and concert venues. Um, and they wound up having that because they have like tour management stuff in their thing. And they just like mm-hmm. needed a way to have a database of venues so that you could input where you were touring so that you could manage your tour calendar easier, which is another mm-hmm. thing that Cash supports. Cash isn't just like open source Bandcamp. It's a whole suite of tools. They've got a publication called Watt about how to be a musician. It's great. Nice. Um, it's very much written for people who like would perform in a club or a bar. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I think new music really needs to stop thinking of itself as a subset of classical music and start thinking of itself as a piece of music. Yeah. Um, and like, guess what? The music economy is mostly not us. So mm-hmm. get over it. Yeah. Um, and cash music has a piece of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't give you the qualitative information. That's really what's going to drive your, uh, your decisions about where you're going to tour. Mm-hmm. So like right now, new music is a small enough niche that the best way you can find out about venues that you want to tour at is just to ask people who are active on the internet in the new music community, where's good in their town. Yeah. And if I bust my hump for three years trying to build a comprehensive new music venue database to provide to you, mm-hmm. you're still not going to have in that database the information that you want, which is, do I know someone who works there? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not really going to make your tour planning go that much faster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this this is where 
looking at like, what are the tools that we want to build? What are the tools that we want different people to provide becomes really interesting because mm -hmm. you have to have a detailed understanding of how people actually do the work. Yeah. How they start, who they talk to, what's fast, what's slow. And this is where like borrowing product development techniques from the software industry becomes really, really helpful because mm -hmm. if you're doing a good job of developing a product, you're not sitting there building software from, from the word go. Mm. You're having good conversations with co potential customers and users about what they need, how it goes, what they do now, mm -hmm. all that stuff that you do before you launch any kind of business. Mm -hmm. um, learning what their actual needs are. And like often when you ask people, I mean, this is, this is how user research goes, right? If you mm. say, what's the thing that I need to do to sell you a thing? And you think about it and then you tell me, mm -hmm. you will pretty much always be wrong. <laughs> Not because you're lying, but because you don't actually have conscious access to your own motivations for doing things. Yeah, yeah. And because the thing that bugs you the most is not actually the thing that drives your decision making. Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing these conversations, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions that will make you tell me a first person narrative. And mm -hmm. then I'm going to do the analysis and then I'm going to design a business and then mm -hmm. I'm going to build from the ground up mm -hmm. the thing that I think is actually going to solve a problem at scale. Yeah. Um, and there needs to be more of that in the nonprofit arts. I'm doing my <laughs> bit. I'm doing my bit. <laughs> nice. Um, so, so tell me more about uh, the new the new music USA platform that like mm. how that came about because I I've had uh, Scott on the show oh, twice yeah, yeah, to yeah. talk about the the process of the grants uh, and how, yeah. how to make applications stronger but but like g give us some of the the yeah. background on this and I, and you've talked to Frank and you've talked to Alex and you've talked to the whole crew <laughs> yeah I've talked to, to to many many people <laughs> yeah yeah um, so. I mean, much of this is pretty well documented as sort of to how it came about. Mm -hmm. um, we got created by the merger between MTC and AMC. Mm -hmm. I was on the MTC side. Um, and suddenly we had five grant programs with eight or more deadlines mm -hmm. that were all really, really confusing for people. And there had been a lot of impetus inside um, the Composer for a long time before the merger to do something like, you know what? Screw it. One deadline, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Of like, why are we making it so hard on our applicants? Why are we making yeah. musicians keep track of all this stuff? Mm -hmm. uh, and like the the outcome of having all those different deadlines with all those different situations was really that the people who were really in the know and were really connected and really up on their game knew how to apply when for what to maximize their chances of getting money. And that meant that like we were funding a lot of white guys from Yale. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, really good musicians, but like if you the more obscure your grant making process is, the more restricted you wind up being to the people who are in the club. Mm -hmm. And that was not something we wanted to be. We wanted yeah. to be open and covering all the music and getting all the really good stuff. Um, and we wanted to make it easier for people. So we took everything, put it together into one big bucket and said, it's our job to sort it out. It's not your job to know what all the different programs are. Mm -hmm. Turns out our jobs got easier when we did that too. But uh, the big thing that made the, the website sort of possible and required and like instead of switching from one custom or one third party grant making platform to another to another to another uh we wound up building our own mm -hmm. we wound up building an engineering department i learned how to run product which was not a thing i knew how to do <laughs> um because we wanted to do this revolutionary idea that i'm like you know i i say it's the greatest thing since sliced bread in part because i came up with it uh <laughs> 
that says, instead of making a grant application that's just like a private letter that you write to a funder, mm-hmm. let's make something public facing. Let's make something that is just your Kickstarter project or is just your marketing materials. Mm-hmm. And like we have seen projects come in that are like, this is my concert flyer. Here it is done. Um, so you can actually make a project to submit to New Music USA in like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it'll encourage you to get your marketing together yeah. because you're going to need to do digital marketing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we publish it, we or when we fund it, we publish it. So now New Music USA has the power to actually help the things it funds get tickets sold and get butts in seats. Mm-hmm. Like if you have a concert that we funded coming up in Chicago, we can email everyone in Chicago and say, go to the show. Nice. Um, a lot of funders say stuff like, we want to be more than just a funder. And New Music USA really walks the walk. It really commits to helping the field actually succeed, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which I'm really, really proud of. And the team there did an excellent job. Uh, we, I worked really, really closely with engineering and with grant making. Well, engineering didn't exist. I built engineering. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie Ficklin has been there since like 1999, 2000. He's like the institutional memory of that organization. Mm. And we built out an actual engineering staff, nice. <laughs> um, which now has Eileen Mack and Madeline Bohm on it. Eileen Mack, who's like been in the new music scene in New York forever, is mm-hmm. brilliant. Uh, and now is a developer. Yay. Yeah. Um, and we like, we built this program that has no in-person panel review that doesn't ask you for a budget if you're asking for a small amount of money. Mm-hmm. And Emily, who you've talked to, who's now running New Amsterdam, was mm-hmm. a key part of this process too. Like it was a it was a really fun project, and it's a really sweet product. I think that saves a lot of time for the arts. Um, I mean, looking at the like over a thousand projects we get submitted every deadline. Let's say we took it from being a ten hour grant application process down to being a one hour grant application process, where you're copying and pasting materials you already have and just linking us to YouTube and being done. Mm-hmm that's a lot of time that we've put back into the arts economy before we've even done the panel process. Yeah. That's a huge service. <laughs> yeah, totally. On, I mean, on, then, on top of already reducing the yeah. number of times you have to do that. Yeah. Um, and like, there's a lot of interesting stuff where we sort of wound up with a social network where like, you know, you have a profile, like, a, like your profile on a social network site. So mm-hmm. you never have to submit another bio again. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, it's just a dynamic thing. Some people use their New Music USA profile as their personal website Mm -hmm. because it saves a lot of time and money and bother. Like you don't have to deal with some crappy web host that's going to lie about having their backup tapes broken just when your website got hacked so they don't have to bother restoring it. Like you don't have to deal with that crap. Um, I think it's a really huge service to the field and I think it's only going to get better. Yeah, I I like the the evolution of it, you know, already, and I just I hope I get funded someday. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the other piece of it, right? Like we collect because of our national funding program that is sort of like the big program in town for a lot of new music stuff. Mm. We collect the greatest census of new music activity in the country every time we have a round. That's fantastic. Um, and because the website is so visible, and because we're so technically sophisticated at New Music USA that allows us to have access to new funding opportunities and push for big grants for technical innovation, which is something where a lot of foundations want nonprofits to be leading. And that's Mm -hmm. something Music USA is really out in front. Nice. Um, If you look at a nonprofit with a budget, the size of new music USA and the staff, the size of new music USA is, and you say you have three on staff developers, (laughs) 
whoa, dude. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, but of course, if you look at a like for-profit company that lives online and you say, wow, you have three out of like 13 or 14 people as developers, that's not nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so we're, we're in this interesting, interesting, uh, bifurcated world, but like the platform, having the platform itself is letting us attract more money to give out to artists, which is something that we're like, that's why we do this. Yeah. That's like, our plan is not to develop freemium users and then scale and then get VC and then grow and then be acquired. Like we're mm-hmm. not a for-profit web platform. We yeah. can't have that venture fueled hockey stick growth. Mm-hmm. That's actually illegal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So what we do instead is attract new foundation funding that supports what we do. Nice. I I, I hadn't realized how, how kind of ahead of things New Music USA has been on this. I know mm-hmm. this is like a that the this this new project, uh, project grants are are like really innovative, but yeah. I hadn't realized that that the the organization itself was as ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, it's a really awesome organization that's like willing to take some risks and commit to some stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's really paid off. And like the, the award percentage for project grants is really, really tiny in part because we've made it so easy and not time consuming to apply and we've mm-hmm. made it so more open. So it's easier to support the full breadth of new music. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means we have more information about the state of the field as a whole and it's turbocharges our advocacy and yeah. Yes, the award percentage is small, and the award percentage for the other grants used to be higher, but the, also the award, the applicant pool for the older grants used to be tiny and more exclusive and dodgy. And like, mm-hmm. we don't want to be in the business of telling people they're not supposed to apply or they're not allowed to apply. We yeah. want to support new music. We want to be driven by the artists. We want to supply what people need, not telling them what they should want. Mm-hmm. This is how funders are supposed to operate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's really fun. We do a lot of cool work. Nice. Nice. Um, and the, in the last two years, I've been consulting for the MAP Fund as well. Mm. Um, like, I, gotten, I got completely bit by the bug of how do we make grant-making programs that actually do more work than mm-hmm. just giving away money. Yeah. So, like, the, the way philanthropy thinks about technology is fairly outdated. It's still usually seen as a durable good. Mm-hmm. something like a car that you buy it you compromise you dislike it you work around it it breaks you don't like it and then eventually you have to replace it after yeah. like appreciation um but what we showed at new music usa is that your website your digital presence is a constantly accountable manifestation of how you believe your work should be done mm-hmm it's not something that you want to just fork over to a third party vendor. Like most people who interact with funders are interacting when they're applying for money. Mm-hmm. Why would you surrender that user experience to define who you are to your constituents, to a third party company that doesn't really understand your goals? Yeah. Especially when like building a grant making program in a website is not rocket science. Like the, the tools for building what's called a CRUD application, create, revise, update, delete mm-hmm. are, well understood and not expensive Mm -hmm. um and so like it used to be 20 years ago that you couldn't mount a program like this on your own you needed to like fork over giant chunks of change to huge for-profit companies yeah and now you can just do it yourself (laughs) and it's totally reasonable like but there are still giant foundations that are totally rich enough and staffed up enough to have in-house engineering departments that maintain their own program to their own specs Mm -hmm. that don't do it and surrender a huge piece of their representation to their community that way. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, one of my drums that I bang is here's how we can take this process and make it achieve your goals. Mm-hmm. So like what we did in New Music USA and what we're doing a little bit with MAP is to say there's a lot of communication work inherent in doing grant making. Mm-hmm. You have to like write about what you want to do and why it needs to be funded. And there needs to be a panel process that can look at that and decide about it and review it and award it or not, or have some, you know, decision theory in there. And then there's some award list. That's like a list of names and a list of dollar amounts. And you can see on new music USA that we did something totally different. We said like, there are screw grant reports. Nobody mm-hmm. reads them. They're boring. Mm-hmm. Give us a blog post about your upcoming concert before the concert. So we can email people about it. Yeah that'll be more useful for everyone. We'll get more information about your project than we would if it were a grant report that came later. Yeah. Like, I mean, we used to get grant reports that were like three years late, pencil scrawled on a piece of paper that said, thanks, it was fun. Like that, that's not helping anybody. No, not at all. But we can leverage the communication required to apply for award and manage philanthropic dollars to Mm -hmm. do more complicated things, to do two jobs at once, Mm -hmm. to actually like help people succeed uh, and there, that's easy to do in the arts because, like, if I say, instead of giving me a piece of grant writing, give me a piece of marketing. Mm-hmm. You already have that, or you should. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give it to the panel, and they'll judge it based on artistic quality. Uh, that's something that people sometimes get wrong about New Music USA. They see that, like, this shiny website, and they're like, you're going to judge me based on my number of Twitter followers. We are not going to do that. <laughs> we will help you have more Twitter followers, but we will not judge you based on your marketing success. Mm-hmm. We will judge you based on your art, and then we will try to help you have marketing success. Because yeah. if you speak to us in the language of marketing, it's easier for us to actually get your message around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the marketing is really easy for the arts. But there, there are a lot of implications for this kind of way of doing philanthropy beyond the arts, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of applicant pools for a lot of kinds of money have shared advocacy goals. And the funder can be a hub for a lot of shared communication stuff and do a lot of interesting work in any field. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's what I'm working on now, helping other arts funders save time for the arts and helping this approach to philanthropy transform other kinds of grant making. Nice. As you're, ta- as you're talking, I keep my brain keeps going off in different directions. Like, I hey. keep like taking little notes of thinking about this. <laughs> um, so you, you write a, you write a, a fair amount. Like I've mm-hmm. seen on your on your website, you have a lot of essays, and yeah. it's clear that you do a lot of speaking to organizations and at conferences and yeah, and at universities and, and you know wherever people will listen about yeah. um about this and 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 a whole whole range of things. Yeah, um, you, you seem to have a lot of uh, um wonderful hobby horses. <laughs> <laughs> And surprisingly few actual hobbies. <laughs> Does, do, do people have hobbies anymore? I don't know. I mean, the one of the weird things about just internet life and being in the arts is that, like, you feel this interesting obligation to turn... Pardon me. You feel this interesting obligation to turn your social time and your hobby life into a shippable product. Mm-hmm. Right? Like half the reason actually happening came around is that I like hanging out with my brother, my partner, Victoria, my friend, Steven, and my friend, Anna, and talking shit about history. Mm -hmm. Like they're a funny group of people. 
we were talking about having a podcast for a while and then we finally got it together when we were like, you know what? We're funny enough now. We can do it. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a way of turning hanging out into something that I can put on the internet and have an audience care about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I mean, that's part of why we've like never tried to market it. We've never really stuck to a schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that we do that takes a lot of time is edit. Mm-hmm. Um, which a lot of podcasts, I know you you don't do, and I applaud you for it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it it takes up too much. Yeah, it, it's it's time consuming, and it I, f- I feel it's a little bit less genuine. Yeah, it it takes it takes a lot of time, mm-hmm. um, and you know, but we're much funnier when we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it does take like you know to edit a 45 minute taping down to a 25 minute show, which mm. is about our, what our ratio is. It takes like five hours, six hours per episode. Oh yeah. Um, and like, no one's paying us any money for this. We haven't bothered to have sponsors. We haven't even bothered to have like a Kickstarter project. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's still one more episode in the can. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that we taped well over a year ago. Nice. Yeah. I, I, got that written down i want to i'm going to check that i want to check out your show Uh, yeah five stars on itunes i don't really care if you listen to it but five stars on itunes that's what i care about yeah i know and 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 on mine too everybody (laughs) more reviews oh somebody said something the other day that i about this this should be my cta but i'm going to do it now um I was listening to another podcast and somebody said like the more reviews the show has the better guests we can get like the more like more impressive guests that can, you know, teach you more shit. Um, so everybody do it. Um, CTA was in, a, in the middle of the show this time. There we go. Yeah. There was a fun <laughs> thing. Um, Lexicon Valley, which is a podcast that's still being run out of slate, but it used to be run by different hosts. Mm. Um, right when they were getting started, they had, I mean, it's a, it's a show about the use of language and really fun stuff. If you're into linguistics, uh, the, they used to have a thing that was like, they had a little contest of like, if you use an obscure literary device in an iTunes review, we'll like shout out or give you a something or nice. like, it was a cool little trick for giving people a reason to write in the iTunes review. Nice. Was, That's cool. <laughs> um, so since you, you know, you're writing, you speak a lot about, you know, all these different yeah. things. One of the things is um, the economics of art. The, the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you, give us a sort of a broad sense of, what what that means for for us as um as creators of of art uh, okay. who might not have thought about this in any detail okay. whatsoever um so there's i mean there are a lot of different ways to come at this so first off i am not an economist i have degrees in composing and philosophy mm. um but my mom's an economist and <laughs> <laughs> um the yeah, it's weird. Like my, my dad's a computer scientist, my mom's an economist, and my brother and I got degrees in math and music, and now we both work on the business side of computers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Family businesses, hard to get away from. I know. Uh, so my real contribution to this discussion is to say, you know what, this piece of performing arts economics called Baumel's Cost Disease, super interesting, from the 60s, mm-hmm. brilliant piece of econ- economics, has huge implications for arts businesses, but no one's extended it to, to talking about what it means for individual working artists. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I did that. And it means a lot of things, but like it to understand it, you really need to like, just, I mean, it's not super counterintuitive. It's not like super revolutionary, but it's a, it's a cool theoretical framework for helping you handle a lot of difficult decisions. Mm. Uh, and it makes a lot of stuff sort of come together. Um, so cost disease is this. Let's say you're a bank in the 50s. Mm-hmm. A lot of what you do is add and subtract. Mm-hmm. You don't, like maybe you have one really expensive IBM mainframe computer, mm-hmm. but you do a lot of tallying the numbers and checking. Mm-hmm. And you have a huge staff devoted to this. Mm-hmm. And you have a small staff that's non-mathy, that is made up of, you know, sons of wealthy families who got C's at fancy schools who are loan officers. <laughs> um, I mean, these are the people who used to do banking. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were a very small portion of the staff. They just got to work in the C-suite because class distinctions. Hey, the 50s. Yeah. Um, the, but then computers got better and cheaper. And so the number of people who you had with the job title of computer, mm-hmm. which used to almost all be women, uh, went way down because you had computers. So you had productivity gains. Mm-hmm. Hey, so there's part of your business that gets a lot faster and cheaper because of computers. Mm-hmm. And there's part of your business that doesn't, the like talking to people part. Uh, and so over time, relatively, some parts of the economy are going to get a lot cheaper and some parts of the economy are going to get a lot more expensive. Mm-hmm. So this is why, for instance, healthcare costs are spiraling out of control. The traditional use case, for, uh, the traditional cluster of businesses is performing arts, healthcare, education. Mm-hmm. So performing arts, the example that Baumol used, he's still around. He's still alive and kicking at Princeton. Um, he wrote a new book a couple years ago, which is what I read and got me going on all this. He's mm-hmm. totally brilliant. Is uh, the string quartet? You know, mm-hmm. no matter how fast your phone gets and how fast your computers get, it's still going to take you four people one hour to play that string quartet. Yeah. Um, but your back office work—the faster computers get, the faster all this other stuff get—that's going to get cheaper and faster, and 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 experience these crazy productivity gains. Mm-hmm. Um, and that puts weird, interesting pressures on businesses. And so this is where uh, usually the discussion gets about this far, and then says, "So because of cost disease and all the productivity gains we're experiencing in the front office, and the no productivity gains we're experiencing on the actually orchestra side, that means we have to." move from a salary to a, to a gig-based orchestra contract. It means we have to fire musicians, because we have to have fewer subs, do less rep, and give the CEO a raise. Usually that's where that discussion stops. Yeah. Um, which, like, economically you can understand the pressures, but as a musician you're like, I'm sorry, we're doing what now? <laughs> uh, the, and that's where the conversation stops. It's, it, all the analysis is of big businesses that suffer this uh, situation. But once the artist is forced out of the institution, which Mm -hmm. is where the tale usually trails off, Mm -hmm. cost disease is still a useful explainer for what's going on, um, which is where I pick up. Mm -hmm. Um, So now you're you're not a violin player with a seat in an orchestra where you get to play war horses and the you know do the live music for the fireworks every Fourth of July. Mm -hmm. Like it's not that anymore. Now you're an independent violinist, and you are not an employee of a company. You're a small business owner mm-hmm. and you have to deal directly with your audience because you're selling lessons and wedding gigs and commissions and 
CDs, but you're not selling them through a record company. You're selling them on Kickstarter, on the internet. You're doing all this stuff yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's two parts of your job. There's the part where you play the violin and there's the part where you do all the admin work that the institution you used to work for used to do. Mm-hmm. And guess what? One of those things experiences productivity gains and the other doesn't, yeah. just like the orchestra you used to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually tells you some stuff. Like the way you do taxes and plan travel at the beginning of your career should be different from the way you do it at the end. <laughs> there are things that you should expect to change. And there are things that you should not expect to change. Mm-hmm. You should be looking for productivity gains on the business side instead of learning one skill and sticking with it for your whole career. The way that, I mean, like we're musicians, we learned how to do what we do. We learned how to practice and then we practice and we practice the same way for our whole lives. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. But that doesn't work for the other half of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that we bump into here is that the conservatory training that most musicians get doesn't cover audience-facing work. Mm-hmm. Conservatories train you to be an employee, mm. or they train you to be uh, a independent contractor that sells work to large businesses. Mm-hmm. If you're a composer, you know you get training in how to have big orchestra commissions. Yeah. Because the people who are teaching you are the people who are successful in whatever model we're talking about, who got the big orchestra commissions. Mm-hmm. So like the people who are teaching you do not have a representative experience of the career you're about <laughs> to have. And even if they did, they had it 20 years earlier than you're going to. And guess what? The music economy has been exploding since the 90s. Yeah. Their experiences are not going to be like your experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, this generation is not going to have a career that is like their teachers. And more than their teacher's generation, members of this generation are not going to have careers that are like each other's careers. Yeah. So you got to figure it out yourself. You've got to be an audience-facing business person. You've got to actually confront a lot of stuff that people in our field are not used to confronting. Mm -hmm. Um, But people in, like, other kinds of music are totally used to confronting. People are used to, like, saying, you know what, I'm going to build my audience by taking low paid gigs around my city's indie music scene for five years Mm -hmm. and you get better at music and you develop a diehard fan base. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 10 years later, you're an overnight success. Yeah. Everybody, but us knows how to do this. (laughs) Um, And so taking this stuff seriously means getting into all these different areas that you aren't used to before. Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to make long-term decisions about what you think is going to get more and less expensive is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's really fun about having a good understanding of cost disease when you're an individual artist is that it's sort of a Swiss army knife of analysis mm-hmm. where like, if you're considering doing a deal with a publisher or a record company or an orchestra or whatever, or having a long-term relationship with a manager, mm-hmm. you can do some quick back of the envelope math looking at that business based on what you think is going on inside, based on taking the chunks of it that are going to get cheaper than inflation and more expensive than inflation Mm -hmm. and see what you think is going to happen in the long term. So like, and then you can decide whether or not to do the deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Take publishers as an example. It used to be that publishers controlled the printing presses, which was a big deal. Yeah. They were the ones who could make the paper that had notes on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you had to do a deal with them because you did not have the ability to make paper with notes on it. <laughs> now we all have the ability to do that. Yeah. But the publishers are still here. Why? Well, because along with their like physical equipment, they are, they, they are like as a role, the publisher is embedded in copyright law and 
they have these distribution networks and these relationships that exist um, that are really important. They're left with the human marketing communications talking part of their business mm-hmm. to make them valuable. Look at a record company. They used to be able to make records. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to, you can make records. Yep. So why are they still important? Well, because their style of business is embedded in copyright, their mechanical licenses and these things, mm-hmm. and because they still have the distribution networks and the communications and the marketing reach and the ability to do these things that you can't quite do. They're left with the human essential part of their businesses. Mm-hmm. This is why you started seeing 10 years ago, like the Live 365 and like for-profit record companies and agencies and things that are like dealing with Lady Gaga and big pop acts start doing what's called 360 deals. Mm-hmm whether like we are going to just represent you and our, our value to you is not going to be the machinery that we own. It's going to be our reach. Mm. And like, those are still good deals for a lot of people, but mm. it's a different kind of business than it used to be. Mm. And a lot of the stuff that ca- classical musicians are handed. And like a lot of composers come out of the classical music world, even though we say it's not necessarily a subset of classical music. A lot, like people who think they do the same job that you and I do have this classical thing in their background somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, That training doesn't involve dealing with this stuff. Yeah. That's got to change. Yeah. So that's, that's my short pitch of arts economics. Cool. I'm, I'm pro that there's a lot to process. (laughs) I talk uh, real fast. A lot of, I'm going to have to unpack that at some point. I'm going to have to listen to this like five times. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, but I totally agree that, yeah, we, we don't have, I mean, that's a lot of, a lot of what this show is, is trying to Pardon find me. the, you're so vulgar, <laughs> <laughs> um, trying to find this, the skills and, and hopefully teach some of the skills that we don't get in the conservatory yeah. setting. But like, here's the other annoying part about those skills. They're not going to make us rich. No. Um, like this is one of the lies around the term music entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, people hear music entrepreneurship and they think that they're going to be as rich as most people who are called entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And those people run tech companies and they get massive VC investment and they pay themselves a salary and then their business succeeds or it doesn't. Yeah. Um, so like if you're, a, this, is, this is another thing I, I try to tell musicians to do is to think about your economic existence and think about a, normal person's economic existence. Mm -hmm. Yes, musicians aren't normal. Uh, Think about what it's like to work at a bank for 25 years. Think about Mm -hmm. having an average 4% nominal uh, salary increase every year. Mm -hmm. Think about having employer-provided health insurance. Think about what the debt products are that exist around that life, like the 30-year fixed mortgage for buying a house. Mm -hmm. Um, Think about the rate of pay increase to cover inflation that you require. <laughs> mm. uh, and think about what music is likely to do. Think about the for-profit businesses that borrow money and then spend it in anticipation of growth. Yeah. Like if you're a small business owner, you're starting a restaurant, you borrow a couple ten gra- a couple tens of thousands of dollars to mm-hmm. buy the restaurant, fix it up, buy the food, hire the staff. Mm-hmm. And you start earning money after you've spent like 50 grand. Yeah. Uh, and then you start maybe paying it back eventually. Like there's a reason nine out of 10 restaurants fail mm-hmm. to start with. Um, 
but you're borrowing money and then earning enough that you can pay it back with interest and then have a profitable business. Yeah. Musicians and music businesses, especially classical music businesses, aren't really set up to grow that way. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a violin player, you're not thinking, you know what? I could be a really successful violin player. If only I could borrow 10 grand to do what exactly? Yeah. <laughs> like maybe record an album, but like, how is that album going to map onto like having a newly profitable business that can pay back the 10 grand plus interest? Yeah. It's not really going to happen that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the language around entrepreneurship, I mean, this is why I talk about it in terms of self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, the point of it isn't that there's this new glorious future where you're an independent operator and everyone can be Claire Chase. Claire Chase gets to be Claire Chase. <laughs> the Selling everyone on the notion that they also get to be Claire Chase is where this whole thing falls down. Mm-hmm. Um, and Claire is wonderful, great human being. Nothing against Claire. Yeah. Claire is fantastic. There is one of her. <laughs> um, the the reason that it's important to teach everyone these skills is that if you don't learn them, you're going to be extra screwed. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is not the way to prosperity. This is the way to being slightly less totally fucked over. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, you got to learn the self-defense stuff. But, you know, saying that it's on musicians to fix the problems that arts in our society face is really victim blaming. Mm-hmm. And that's not where the responsibility lies. Yeah, It's like how tech companies, when they face sexism problems are like, hmm, what we should really do. I mean, I'm, when tech companies that are run by white dudes face sexism problems, mm-hmm. they say, hmm, what we need to do is find some women to ask what we should do. And it's like, well, why is it their responsibility to solve your management problems? It's actually <laughs> your job. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, learn about what the experiences of the people you're accidentally oppressing are like, but don't put the responsibility for solving the problem onto the oppressed. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for the arts? Well, really, it means a welfare state. Like, let's be honest. <laughs> it means universal health care. It means universal basic income. Mm-hmm. It means that, yeah, the cost of doing performing arts, education, health care is getting so high Mm. that we're not going to be able to have everyone support themselves on the old prices in the new way. And the prices aren't going up. The prices are going down. Yeah. Even in nominal dollars. So like we need to, as a society, as a society decide that we want these things to continue. Um, And this is one of the other really key insights of Baumol. Like the fact that some stuff gets more expensive and some stuff gets cheaper it's all averaged. It's all within an economy. Mm-hmm. By definition, we can afford it. Mm-hmm. We just have to decide to. Yeah. And what we're actually doing at the moment, especially in America, is saying the cost of the stuff that we want is going up. Oh, well, we'll just have less of it. Mm-hmm. And instead, rich people will get richer, poor people will get poorer, and we'll buy more iPhones. Mm-hmm. Like, And that's not how we want our society to be run. Like parts are a vital part of society for a lot of different reasons. Mm. And they're really slippery when you're trying to do policy analysis and like advocacy work. Cause you say things like, well, the arts, they exist in nonprofit cultural organizations. And so they're more like charities than like businesses. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Well, but nonprofit cultural space. So we'll include zoos. Well, sort of. Um, and like, we'll try to do arts economic analysis and capture all the economic activity that is happening around the arts. Okay. Well, to start with, I can tell 
a lot about the statistics you're compiling about the arts in the economy based on whether or not you include Johnny Ive as an artist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The, and a lot of the activity that you really want to be capturing that like makes the arts valuable to a community is not the stuff that scales. It's not the stuff that's easy to measure with your economic tools like GDP. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not even the stuff that gets captured in individual artist tax records. Mm-hmm. Like it's the stuff that happens without that much changing hands of money, without that much in the way of formal businesses. Mm-hmm. And where then that makes the arts a crucial piece of any functioning society. And like, are they, are they a business or a charity? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> are they for profit or nonprofit? Yes. Mm-hmm. Are they on the books or off the books? Yes. yes. Is it individuals or businesses? Yes. Is it done on a volunteer basis out of love or done on a paid basis out of vocation? Yes. Um, It's messy. It's Mm -hmm. supposed to be messy. It's art. It's defined by its messiness. (laughs) And that makes it really hard to advocate for and really hard to measure. But you can really tell if your society is taking good care of the people in need by if it makes room to take care of the artists. If you design a system that's going to take care of the artists, it's going to take care of a lot of other stuff at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what we need to do. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, that that's kind of a perfect encapsulation of just that. If you, yeah, taking care of everybody. Mm. Who are you taking care of? And that just resonates in so many ways. And <clears throat> But that's another conversation for a different yeah. type of podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so around, let's skirt that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh so we're we're coming up vaguely on the hour here. Um not that we have to stop at the hour, but mm-hmm. um you have on let me look let me make sure I'm not lying here. Yes, you it's I'm not lying. Um one of the things that you have right on right on your your the front page of your website yeah. um is is you know, with with fundraising, specifically Kickstarter, and, and and oh yeah, and like Kickstarter, like talked about it a little bit on the show. Um, just had Dale Trimbor and uh, Brandon Elliott from Coral Arts Initiative mm-hmm. on, and they were talking about uh, why they didn't do a Kickstarter in for their album. Um, but like fundraising for individuals is fucking rough. Yeah, it's not easy to do. Um, what are, what are some of your your thoughts on it? Um, well, yeah, the best way to get all of my thoughts is to read the stuff that I mm-hmm. wrote on the, on the site. Um, I've written a lot about it. Yeah. The, I think every musician should run a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, preferably early in the career when the risk is lower. Later on, it gets harder to do mm-hmm. uh, because it is, it pretty much gives you an MBA in like a month. Mm-hmm. It forces you to confront a lot of different business skills. Mm-hmm marketing, emailing, making a video, pricing, budgeting, shipping, Mm -hmm. all this different stuff, project Mm -hmm. management, putting a team together, hiring people. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that you learn really quickly is what parts of that process you love and what parts of that process you fucking hate. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That self-knowledge is really valuable Mm -hmm. um, because it can tell you where you want to put your efforts, what kind of opportunities you want to pursue, where you think you need help to do the work that you want to do and where you think you can do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really important to know about yourself early and doing a Kickstarter project teaches it to you real fast. Yeah. 
Um, the, the biggest problem that people have when they approach fundraising is they think what I need to do is fundraise. And if I do fundraising, well, whatever that means, mm-hmm. then money will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, yes, if you fundraise well, you will have money. However, it's not this like black box monolith where if you're good at it, you're going to get the money. Um, mm. I heard a story once of uh, a university development officer who like first day on the job came back from a lunch with a major donor with a million dollar check. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. You must be a great fundraising officer. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice donor. Yeah. Not like what? By the time you get to be having lunch with the person, they want to give you the money. Yeah. All you have to do is let them, and at the end of the lunch, remember to ask, <laughs> which people forget to do. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of the big tests in fundraising is like, can you get to the end of the lunch and say, and please give me a million dollars instead of saying, thank you for your time? Like, yeah. That's, um, for individual arts fundraising, the thing that nobody does, and the thing all of my Kickstarter planning stuff is really built around, is externalizing the things that you already know mm-hmm. about how to raise money. Um, I was just having a conversation with somebody else about this recently that um, people avoid getting honest with themselves about planning. Mm-hmm. And really the reason they do it is to abdicate responsibility. Mm-hmm. Cause you want to, if your Kickstarter fails, you really don't want to go. I suck. Yeah. You want to be able to get to the end of it and go, well, Oh, well I didn't fail. I just, you know, if I, you know, I didn't know. I found out. Yeah. I didn't know how it was going to go. Yeah. I couldn't have known. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have known. <laughs> um, so if you get, if you download the spreadsheet off my website, it's all built around, like it helps you take care of like cost per unit and fixed costs and all that. But mm-hmm. like the real thing it does is make you go down the list of everybody you're going to ask for money and guess how much they're going to give you. Yeah. Um, and nobody does this. Because it's emotionally really hard. Yeah, it is. Like, how much is your mom going to give you? <laughs> yep. How much is your roommate going to give you? Mm-hmm. What about your boss? What about your barista? Mm-hmm. How big's your mailing list? Mm-hmm. What's what conversion rate are you expecting there? Is it a hundred percent? It better not be a hundred percent. Is it more like ten percent? Probably. Probably. Yeah. Um, like. And you write down dollar amounts next to their name and you write down the probability that you think they're going to give you the money mm-hmm. and then you have an expected value of your list. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually did that. I did that Good. for my Kickstarter. I actually, I went down and like each, each family member, each friend, I put them in like, okay, these are the people who I know are going to give me money. And I know it's going to be something like that. These people will probably give me money and it's probably going to be less. And then these people might give me money. These Good people, job. it's a long shot. How'd it go? Um, I was pretty accurate. Nice. Which was, yeah, because I, I kind of expect that people are too busy or too poor. And so I'm like, uh, you know, the higher proportion of people move off to yeah. the right of, you know, less and less mm-hmm. opportunity, less and less yeah, dollars. Yeah. I know I can mm-hmm. count on these people. So here's what I want to be true of your experience. Uh, <laughs> One is that you had a much less stressful Kickstarter campaign period than other people did. Because instead of going, oh my God, I hope the internet gives me money. Mm-hmm. You could go, I hope these four people give me money and here's how I can email them. Yeah. Um, and I know you, I'm not saying it was unstressful. I'm saying, trust me, it was less stressful. Yeah, it probably was. It was a um, white knuckled experience. Oh yeah. Um, and 
there is so much that I would do differently if and when I do it again. Yep. But... Like and, like, I, it's a huge amount of work. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I I did the four... I, I did a full four-week thing. Yeah. And I think I would make it shorter next time. Why? Um, to make it a little bit more... I mean, well, obviously, you have the people who come in right at the beginning, and it's, it's a small number of people who are like, yes, absolutely, here you go. And then yep. everyone disappears until the last few days, and you get a big yep. spike. Yep. I would just like to shorten that middle phase a little bit. Yep. Um, this was the thing that they found out on Kickstarter doing data analysis pretty early. Mm-hmm. Like there's a spike at the beginning, a spike at the end and a big hole in the middle. Yep. Uh, I am sort of okay with the 30 day length, four week length generally, because if your initial bump isn't as big as you thought, it mm-hmm. gives you enough time to think of something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, that's where, you know, you get to the flat bit and you go, okay, are we going to make it? Mm-hmm. Or, have I got to cancel my plans and email everyone one by one or come up with something else mm-hmm. or think of something that'll raise extra money or a gimmick or add new rewards or all that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, and if your, if your planning doesn't, didn't work, you want the window to fix it. Mm-hmm. But if your planning is great and you're really confident about it, yeah, pff, three days. Why not? <laughs> yeah. I, I would bring it probably down to three weeks. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. two weeks. If I'm hyper confident, about yeah. a project and I'm like, not asking for a ton. Yeah. This like was, a month is a long time on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, we got four grand. Yeah. Um, what was your goal? The, the, the goal was four and we got $4,011. Um, and that's it was, another thing you got to keep in mind. Um, it will trail off once you cross the threshold. Yeah. And, and if you have a really good model, like you did of who's going to give you money and how much they're going to give you. Mm-hmm. You can use the all or nothing as a benefit. You can set yeah. the goal right where it's a bit of a stretch. Mm-hmm. And then more people will kick in more money to get you across the, the finish line. Yeah, um, it was that le- Which, you, that which le- you can't do without a budget and a plan and an expected revenue side. Like a lot of people will budget their expenses side, but not their revenue side. Yeah. They'll go, I need 10 grand. And where's it going to come from? The internet. That's <laughs> not how it works. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was lucky that that last day was when it just... I got right over the line, and and one person just saw, he's really close. Here's twenty five dollars, and put me over the line. You know that was that was kind of his plan, and I've got yep. like my husband and my parents standing by with credit cards to put it over if they need to. That's reality. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that's why a lot of people go to Indiegogo because they don't want to have the all or nothing thing. But mm-hmm. the all or nothing thing should be a tool that helps you. Yeah. Um. And if you're not like, and if you're not going to use the all or nothing thing and the fact that people like Kickstarter as a platform and already have Kickstarter accounts, mm-hmm. if you're not going to leverage that value, just sell shit and use your own website and don't tithe money to a for-profit company. Use cash yeah. music. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. like Kickstarter has a lot of valuable features. Mm hmm. And they charge 5% of your total, plus they do all the credit card processing. Mm-hmm. Make the 5% you pay them worth it. Mm-hmm. That sounds like you did, which is awesome. Yeah. I'm just telling your listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it, you know, we, we learned a lot, and I, I know how I would plan differently next time. Yeah. Um, and there, there are certain things that I, I learned from other sources afterwards, I was like, oh, I wish I'd known that. That would have made things better up front. 
yeah on the on the front bump to make the the back bump less of a white knuckled experience you know experience yeah i mean this is the the boy scouts prior planning prevents piss poor performance mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> maybe that's the army i don't i don't know <laughs> um but yeah like it's it's not a black box it's not like i don't know what's going to happen you are in fact responsible for the outcome of entrepreneurial ventures like this that you take on yourself. Mm-hmm. They're in your control. Yeah. Um, and there are always going to be places where your brain wants to go. It's out of my control. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything about it. Um, because your brain wants to be let off the hook if it fails. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to stay sane, but it's not a great way to get success. Yeah. Um, and you are actually responsible if it fails anyway. So like, <laughs> but it's a weird thing that everyone's brain does. Like mm-hmm. you, you want to, cause what you want to do is the fantasy is not try very hard, put up a Kickstarter project, hit go. And then, Hey, I'm rich. Yeah. Yay. Everybody loves me. Yeah. I've my got, I've got potato virtue, salad money. Right. Like my pure virtue and talent as an artist has led to money to fall from the sky. And I didn't have to do any of the hard work. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you have, the, you have to do the hard work. Yeah, you've got you've got to do the work. There are there is no magic button. No, there are, there are no easy ways out. Like yeah. you actually have to do the thing. Yeah. Um, and your your brain will always look for ways to not make it your fault if it fails. Mm-hmm. And it's your job to look for ways that your brain is doing that and to call it on its shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to get serious. Yeah. Um, because you don't. It doesn't need to be a nail biter. No. And and if and when you fail, don't uh, uh, sit down. Figure out why. Why did I fail? And then do it better. Mm-hmm. Fix it next time. Yep. Like if you own the fact that you're rolling the dice to the extent that you're rolling the dice, mm-hmm. and then you fail. If you've done your planning right, you already know what you did wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like most of the time, you know what you fucked up. Mm-hmm. And the hard part is is admitting it and doing yeah. something about it yeah. like i mean this is why people like me who do coaching stuff and crawl inside your head and pull out the stories you don't want us to pull out and make you confront them are valuable mm-hmm. um because people don't want to admit this stuff people mm-hmm. don't want to confront it um but it's valuable to confront you need a safe space to confront it where you're not going to just feel horrible and plunge into a like hole of depression over a month mm-hmm. um yeah, and if you learn how to do the, do that and be and confront those failures and grow and avoid them in the first place and take mm-hmm. that responsibility, yeah, that's how you're going to get entrepreneurial skills. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of it's about having a thick skin and having the right kind of thick skin. Yeah, um, and not just saying, "Oh, it was Kickstarter. Kickstarter doesn't work," you know, and, and bl- blaming it on a platform. And and yep. I'm, I'm not going to do that again. That's uh, it's uh, it's Kickstarter. It's like, oh, it's just everybody getting money from their families. Oh, that's all it is. And it's like, okay, well, start with, of course your family wants you to succeed. Yeah. So what's wrong with that? To yeah. follow up with. Um, it's all people getting money from their families. I mean, that's, the, that's what you say when you didn't successfully build an audience. Like mm-hmm. Kickstarter is great for taking a poorly organized group of internet people and turning them into an organized group that can accomplish one thing, like mm-hmm. paying for the run of your book or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it's not good for creating an audience out of thin air. No. 
if you don't have like, so if Kickstarter fills a really good hole, if there's a group of people who are willing to give you money and mm-hmm. you need an organized way to ask them, mm-hmm. if you don't have that group of people or you already have an organized way to ask them for money, there is no reason to give Kickstarter the 5%. Yeah. Yeah. Kickstart, yeah. Kickstarter won't build your list for you. Yep. As much as we, uh, as many people think it will. Because yep. there are those nice people who just go around Kickstarter and give $15 here and there. And yep. they're wonderful people. I think I had a couple of those. But yeah. like two or three. Yeah, I mean, I've done a couple of projects. I've worked on a bunch more. And I did a lot more of this back in the early days. Mm-hmm. Like now I'm like watching TV shows on PBS and I'm seeing like <laughs> Kickstarter backers. And it's like, wow, growth. Um, yeah. Back in the early days when Kickstarter was like a novelty. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to count on like maybe 10, 15% of the revenue for a small project coming from random internet strangers. Mm-hmm. And that meant like that back in those days, people just trolling around Kickstarter, finding your thing and giving it some cash would cover the fee that you pay to Kickstarter. Yeah. And maybe a little more. Mm-hmm. I haven't done a Kickstarter campaign in a while. I'm not sure I'd count on that anymore. No, I think I got maybe 60 bucks out of it. Yeah. You know, and maybe that wasn't ran- – they were just names I didn't recognize. They weren't from my mailing right. list. Mm-hmm. And w- with the mailing list, you know, like I was sending emails regularly, um, yep. especially toward the end. And I, and I warned my people, like, you are going to hear from me for a while. And then when this is done, I will go away for a while. Yep. And I had people leave my list during of that. But you know what? Every last one of those people was on the far right of my my list of of people who who might give money. They were the ones that I'm. They're not going to give anything. Yep. And so fine. You know that's really good. Hey, you know what you could have done? What? Taking those people who you think you weren't going to who are, who you thought weren't going to give you anything. Email them less. Hmm. Yeah, I can segment the list. Yep. Um, this is the thing where, where um, the thing that people mess up in marketing and the thing that everyone always needs to do a little bit more of when they're doing the sort of small audience growth stuff mm-hmm. is think one step more carefully about the human experience on the other end of the message. Mm-hmm. Where are they when they're getting it? How are they making a decision? Mm-hmm. Like the, any, any kind of marketing work like this, you can always improve by imagining the other person Mm-hmm. slightly better mm-hmm. um and like it's always tempting when you're making marketing content to say i've made my thing this is my deliverable i'm done mm-hmm. um, you know that there's a saying for journalists like if you have an hour to write an article spend 45 minutes working on the headline mm-hmm. um my version of that for for um email marketing in particular is spend as much time on the email as you spend on the segment. Mm-hmm. Who you're emailing is in fact more important than what you're emailing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's always easy to say, I've written an email and I will send it. Mm-hmm. If you get serious about who the people are and what they're thinking and what they want, and you actually like have this information in your head, you just need to pull it out, write it down, think about it and make a decision. Yeah. Um, you're going to do a lot better mm-hmm. and you're going to, you're going to avoid those, those people telling you to fuck off forever. Cause like, they kind of like your music. Yeah. They dig it. Yeah. They're okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I had a really good sense of, of 
who these like as, as they left like you know every so often I get the unsubscribes you know yeah. it's it's part of the the experience I just had my yeah last there is time. churn that's how it goes yeah last time um, I sent out a, a news just a regular newsletter because the Kickstarter was several years ago um, I had way more uns- unsubscribes than usual which was like three I usually have like zero mm. to one uh, yeah and I looked at that and like this is someone who I haven't like been in touch with for seven years this yeah. is someone who I haven't been in touch with for five years it, the, the, and these are people like we are no longer engaged with one another in any way. And yeah. it's, it's no longer appropriate for them to be getting these anyway. So, yeah. so fine. Like I, you, that at this point, people leaving my list, it doesn't hurt my feelings because I know yeah. I, I can, I can look at their names and say, Oh yeah, I'm surprised they stuck around this long. Yep. <laughs> and like a lot of times the unsubscribes you get are like, it's sensible pruning. Like mm-hmm. this is why MailChimp is a lovely product. It prunes your list by how you use it. Yeah. Like, um, and that's really good. Yeah. Cool. So is there anything else? Uh, we're, we're, we're now like over the hour, which is cool. Um, anything else you want to add with, with fundraising or, 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 you know, the arts economy or, <sighs> or just I, other cool I have shit. Most of my greatest hits. Um, uh, yeah. Go to my website, listen to my music, come to yeah. my shows. Uh, I've got an orchestra performance coming up in Seattle on March 4th that I probably should have plugged earlier. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that'll be fun. Nice. Come see it. Sound Ensemble is a good group. If you want to come out and have a, um, have a uh, drink tonight, uh, there's going to be a like, yeah, tonight. Never mind about that. <laughs> in the, it was nice to see you all at Tutabella in Wallingford. Yeah. On the day this was recorded. <laughs> Yeah, this will actually right. come out. Your performance is on the what? March fourth. March fourth. It's actually going to come out two days later. Fine. So, it was great to see you all there. Yeah, yeah. Make sure you remind me, and I will plug it on the on the podcast Facebook page. Cool. I'm happy to do that for you. So hopefully, all right. you all will have seen that <laughs> last week. All Seattle natives. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, where where can people find you online? I am Kevin E.F. Clark on most things. Kevin E.F. Clark.com resolves to my main website. Um, Kevin E.F. Clark on Twitter. Kevin E.F. Clark on Facebook. That's sort of where I am. Um, spending less and less time on social media and more and more time in Slack channels because mm. the world ended and it's really depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Kevin E.F. Clark at Gmail. I love talking about this stuff. It's what I do. Nice. And you, and you will be at uh, the New Music Gathering. I will. Um, and I will be at the New Music Gathering, so that means that we should have a drink together while we're at the New Music Gathering. Yeah, I will see you at the very earliest, or at the very latest then. Nice. Uh, okay. Sweet. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for being here. This has been great. And a uh, reminder of my middle of the show, CTA. Um, yeah, haven't said this in a while, so reviews, the, you know, g- give me a nice, give me an honest review. Uh, if you think that I swear too much, tell me uh if you think uh i don't know that i'm boring and don't know what the fuck i'm talking about then tell me um but the more reviews the show gets the 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 more i can go after um you know cool people and say people much cooler than me people are much cooler than <laughs> and, and you know like yeah and all these these losers who have been on the show before you know like yeah. fuck them <laughs> we want better people on this show um yeah. 
yeah, that, let me just insult people more. Uh, so <laughs> Kevin, thanks again. Uh, stick around while I stop recording stuff and everybody, thank you for listening and I will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.